Hey there, welcome to another edition of Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, this week on the show, we are talking about the 90s. Remember them? CDs, dial-up internet, Polly Shore was somehow everywhere. The 1990s are also the subject of Chuck Klosterman's book, which is aptly titled The 90s. It was an instant New York Times bestseller, and in it, Chuck takes a deep dive into why the culture and pop culture of the 1990s really was a big deal and has had a huge impact. And also how the kind of slacker ethos from the 90s made him embarrassed to become a successful writer, which he ended up doing anyway. We've also got a very special musical appearance from the international rock band Making Movies. It's going to be a fun show, so sit back, relax, crack a Zima, and get ready for Livewire. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. Are you up for a little round of station location identification examination? I am. Okay, this is where I'm going to tell Elena about a place in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. This city has become notorious for their annual April Fool's jokes that city leaders play on their citizens. (laughs) In 2008, they released a press release announcing that the city was being sold to Canada to boost tourism. (laughs) Sounds like a really fun place. I guess it's somewhere up on the border. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. Bellingham, Washington? I've got another hint. It's it's on the border with Canada, well east of Washington, but not all the way out there. More think middle of the country. The following year, after they announced they were going to uh, sell off to Canada, they began a mock campaign to secure the rights to the 2016 Olympic Games. And apparently somebody (laughs) had already employed a bucket to drain out Miner's Lake that's south of the town. They were going to build stadium seating there for the 2016 Olympics, which in fact did not come to this relatively small town in the upper Midwest. (laughs) I don't know where this is, but I want to move there. It has a great name. It's Ely, Minnesota. Ely, Minnesota. (laughs) Where we are on WIRC radio. So shout out to everyone in Ely. Keep working. Maybe you'll get the 2030 Olympics. (laughs) All right. Should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... Live 
This week, podcaster and writer Chuck Klosterman. What I, what I say in the book, basically, is that of the kind of canonical generations, that, that Generation X is the least annoying. The next line of that is that this is mostly due to size, because it's the smallest generation, so there's <laughs> less people to be annoying. And music from making movies. We're using the same ingredients that made the jambalaya of rock and roll. We're going back to those ingredients, but we have a new recipe. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including in Ely, Minnesota, future <laughs> home of some kind of Olympics, and still part of the United States, we would like to clarify. Hopefully. <laughs> um, we've got a great show in store this week. We are talking about the 90s because of Chuck Klosterman's really incredible book, the 90s. We asked LiveWire listeners to tell us something that they are most nostalgic for from the 90s. We're going to hear those responses coming up in just a bit. First, though, of course, we've got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is, in fact, some good news happening in some places in this country. And uh, we like to tell you about that. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week? I don't think we've ever had roller skating news on the best news. I think I'm correct in that. I think I would remember because I was a big roller skating fan as a kid. Same. Linwood Rollaway, which was connected to a bowling alley called Linwood Bowlaway. Very clever naming conventions. <laughs> and I lived for going there and roller skating on the fast skate to uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard. Oh, heck fire, yeah. I was a big skater back in the day, but also in my 20s. And I had this great pair of like sneaker skates that I mm -hmm. used to tootle around. But we had to get rid of them when we were moving because we were kind of selling everything so that we could go, David could go to grad school. And that's why this story appeals to me. Okay. Because it is another story of a person selling their roller skates at a yard sale. The person is Halifax, Nova Scotia's Renee Forrestal. For her 60th birthday, she was reflecting on times in her life where she felt free and powerful. And she realized that when she was a roller skating fool hmm. 45 years ago, that was a time in her life in which she felt that way. So for her 60th birthday, she bought a pair of brand new kind of black leather roller skates with these amazing LED light-up wheels. She started practicing with them for about a week, and she was disappointed because like a lot of things, they just didn't feel like they were made as well as the skates that she had back in the 70s. So she goes on Facebook Marketplace to look for a vintage pair that resembles the pair that she had, white with kind of a red wheels. She finds a pair that are pretty dirty, but look pretty similar to the kind that she had when she was a teenager. And they had just been posted two hours before. She goes and checks them out. She puts them on her feet. They're unsized. The person who was selling them did not even know what size they were, but she went out on a limb and went there, puts her feet in them, and they feel really good, like Cinderella good. Hmm. And then she turns the tongue of the roller skates out so she can see inside, and her name is written on the <laughs> in her handwriting. Oh, my gosh. They were her skates from... Like years and years ago. These were skates that she had sold at a yard sale 45 years ago. And apparently they had just been gathering dust in this basement ever since like the Carter administration. And then somebody decided to sell them. She went to a skate shop and she got those bad boys tricked out. 
new wheels, super cleaning. She left, however, the hooks where they were because they're kind of hard to lace up. And she just has uh-huh. a sense memory of it taking forever when she was little. So she left kind of the wonky hooks. And now she is a skate and fool in the exact same skates that she wore back when skating was her life. Is there a better story than that? <laughs> that is incredible. I just hope my skates that I sold at a yard sale in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 2011 will come back to me. If anyone has Elena skates in Grand Rapids, hit us up. We need to get those back. The best news that I saw this week comes from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where a guy named Johnny Bell was celebrating a big milestone. He was celebrating 70 years on the job as a mail carrier in Oklahoma City, which officially makes him the longest-serving USPS employee in America. Whoa. 70 years he's been delivering mail in Oklahoma City. (laughs) He started when he was 23 years old. It paid $1.81 an hour when he started. (laughs) And he just absolutely loves the job, and he says, you know, it's keeping him young. There's a picture of this guy, Johnny Bell, in the article. He's 93, right? Because if he started when he was 23, and he's been doing it for 70 years. Oh, my God. He looks great. Everyone needs to throw out whatever fad fitness plan they're into and just become mail carriers. It is like the fountain of youth for this guy, Johnny. He's doing great. Was he like a walking mail carrier? I think so. It's what it sounds like according to the article. Um, And he, you know, obviously would get all the mail back at the home office and bundle up his particular route and then take it out there and do his route. The other thing was when I read this article, I assumed this was his retirement party. No, (laughs) this was just celebrating that he has been doing this for 70 years. They write in the article that he... Enjoyed a little bit of cake. Everyone said, congratulations, Johnny. And then he just got his bundle together and went back out to deliver the mail. Like, this was just another day for this dude. (laughs) This is how they describe Johnny Bell. Uh, A humble man of few words, but when he does speak, everyone listens. I have never been described that way. (laughs) In any capacity, anywhere. So, Johnny Bell, celebrating... 70 years on the job in Oklahoma City. That's the best news that I heard this week. All right, let's uh, invite our first guest on over to the show. GQ calls him Generation X's definitive chronicler of culture. Chuck Klosterman is the best-selling author of a dozen books of fiction and nonfiction, including Raised in Captivity and Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Esquire, and lots of other places. His latest book, The 90s, was an instant New York Times bestseller, and it is fascinating. Chuck joined us on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Let's take a listen to that. Chuck, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Um, You start off kind of making the case for why the 90s were actually a more interesting and and kind of important decade than people might think, because a lot of us think of the 90s as being kind of relatively calm, pretty prosperous. What is it about the 90s that made you want to write about it? Why is the 90s actually more impactful than we think? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting question. Is there a decade that's unimportant? Really? I mean, it's a 10-year window of time. Yeah. It's always surprising to me that people are like, oh, I guess I guess things in the 90s actually married. It was like, well, I mean, the world was happening. Um, <laughs> you know, because what's the least important decade of the 20th century, if we had to make an argument? I suppose we would say the 
first 10 years just because they're discussed the least because the 20s have sort of an immutable quality. The 30s had the depression. Uh, the 40s, obviously, things happened then. And then, you know, the 50s were kind of the building of America. The 60s were transformative. The 70s were the 70s. Um, so uh, <laughs> so why, why did I do this? Well, yeah. you know, there, there's always like a short answer and a long answer, and the short answer is true, and it's like, I don't know what I'm compelled to do, I just do what I do, you know, I never really think about it. The long answer would be all these other things where I'd be like, well, you know, I had this fear that the way sort of history is understood now tends to be through this highly specific kind of personal view, and it makes it much more subjective. Um, I almost feel as though uh, it will be increasingly difficult to get an understanding of the recent past because people will take the ideas of the present and just want to inject it back into that period. I also do think, in a lot of ways, the 90s were the last decade that we're going to have, at least in the way that we've always understood what that meant. You know, the, the idea that there is this period of time where there are sort of shared ideas, shared experiences, things that people who aren't even involved with are almost forced to understand because the monoculture was still sort of central to everything. Um, and that, to me, was important. And but, like, I mean, really, it's, it's, an, it's an impossible thing to know why I did something. I just <laughs> did it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Um, you also mentioned in the book that, like, when you're talking about the 90s, you're not really strictly talking about, like, January 1st, 1990 to December 31st, 1999. You're kind of saying it's the, it's the fall of the Berlin Wall and then 9-11, which is kind of shifts it over by a, a few years. Well, uh, yes and no. Okay. I mean, yes, I am not using the calendar as a way to describe the time itself because that's just not how things worked. I mean, it's not like people pull off, you know, the December of their calendar and it's like, I'm a new person now, the world is different. Like it, it tends to be events or sort of um, just sort of shifts. Now, most historians now, it seems to be, use the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11 as sort of the framing device. Um, I actually don't use the fall of the Berlin Wall. I, I mentioned that many people view that, but I really use the release of Nirvana's Nevermind. Right. In fact, no. I believe you have, I'm no. paraphrasing no. here, but you have a line in the book that's something like, while the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit is not more culturally impactful than the reunification of Germany, yeah. it was an inflection point. <laughs> well, yes, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, because when you look at, say, the year 1990, it's still very much felt like the 1980s. I mean, like Trickster and Poison and Firehouse were touring, you know? And, you know, it's like you could still, like, buy, like, a Garfield phone from the Sears catalog at Christmas. Um, you know, Joe Montana was the best player in the NFL. Cheers was the most popular show. Twin Peaks had come out, but that seemed like, you know, really kind of an, an our kind of fringe arcane thing. The 90s still have a lot of 80s qualities, but this is very common. I mean, if you look at a picture of a, say, a Chicago high school from 1961, people are going to think it's the 50s. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you play the first Nine Inch Nails record, which came out in 1989, people aren't going to be like, oh, 80s music. It's like, right. it's going to... So, like, these, there, there are certain things that sort of shift uh, the culture. And after Nevermind came out and sort of had, you know, had a musical impact that was massive, but its non-musical impact was even greater because there seemed to be this sudden realization that if you wanted to understand any young person, or if you wanted to understand where the culture and society as a whole was moving, you first had to understand like why this specific person looked and acted and dressed the way he did. And 
the, the 90s as we understand it, like the caricature or the cliche of the 90s, really begins in 91. Mm. Uh, we have to take a quick break here on Livewire. We're talking to Chuck Klosterman. Uh, his uh, latest book is The 90s. Uh, we're going to hear more about that coming up in a moment. Stay with us. Back with more Livewire after this. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, Okay. What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. ZBiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash. LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to LiveWire, coming to you this week from Revolution Hall, right here in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are talking to Chuck Klosterman, the writer. His uh, latest book is The 90s. A lot of this book uh, talks about Generation X, which you have documented in various forms over the years. You're a member of Gen X. You write um, that of the generations that uh, have not gone extinct yet, you think Generation X is the least annoying. Hmm. Uh, what, 
What causes you to write that? Okay. I'm very glad you brought this up, right? Because in every review of this book, particularly the negative ones, they always note that line, right? And what I, what I say in the book, basically, is that of the kind of canonical generations, you know, baby boomers, millennials, all these, that, that generation X is the least annoying. The next line of that is that this is mostly due to size, because it's the smallest generation, so there's less people to be annoying. It's the smallest okay. pig yeah. going through the python, okay. basically. Yeah. And yet, beyond that, there is, I think, this, I, in my view, and, and, and I think something has happened that maybe validates this, that for whatever reason, it's like they seemed to complain less pedantically than baby boomers and less aggressively than millennials. Okay, and here is my proof of that. Okay, so when I make when I Two write, two thirds of our yes. audience just walked yes. out of Revolution no. Hall. Bye. Okay, no, and here's here is why I, I feel like. Well, you know, when I wrote that, I was like, well, we'll see if, what the reaction to this is. Now I'm pretty certain I'm right. Here's why. <laughs> so this one line where I say, uh, you know, uh, Generation X was the least annoying, many, many people have complained about that if they are older or younger than that window of time. <laughs> they, they find it, you know, okay. Within that same page, I talk about how, like, well, you know, Gen Xers were kind of apathetic. They'll probably never be a Gen X president. They didn't really have much consequence on the culture. Um, they sort of had a kind of an insular view. They were very self-absorbed. They were kind of solipsistic, all of these things. You know how many Gen Xers have complained about that? None. <laughs> like, there has not been... Everybody older or younger than me who, who reads the assumption or the assertion that Generation X are not, are, are, you know, the least annoying. Not even, I'm saying, I'm not even saying they're unannoying. I mean, I'm pretty annoying, right? It's like, you know, which, which maybe hurts the argument. You know, it's very easy for people to go like, what? Is this dude is telling me? My, okay, but, okay, nonetheless, okay, that, that, they seem to think my claim that the one quality that's good about Generation X is that they weren't very annoying and that they didn't try to kind of inflict their values onto other people and it was kind of uncouth to moralize. Like, they can't believe that I would somehow make this claim. And yet, every negative thing I say about Gen X, the people who are part of that demographic are like, well... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess, sure, whatever. I mean, I don't know, maybe. You know, it's like so. So now, I, now I know I'm right. right. Like, like, like initially, I was like, I'm gonna just play this gambit, see what happens. And like now, I was, I'm, I'm correct on that. Yeah. Uh, you also write in the book that the movie Reality Bites. You say that it presents a sort of a set of values that could only make sense based on it being 1994. Well, yes, and, and I probably have now written and talked about Reality Bites more than any person should. But um, I can tell you that just as far as the Livewire staff is concerned, they're ready for more. Yeah, well, it touched off a long conversation before we even started recording this show. Because, I mean, like, not to run through the whole plot of the movie, but essentially this is a movie that was uh, designed for Generation X people. Like, it wasn't a situation like, say, oh, like Saturday Night Fever or whatever, which becomes a period piece, even though at the time they just thought they were making a movie. Now we look at Saturday Night Fever as a way to understand, you know, disco culture in Jersey and New York during this specific time. But Generation X, it was like, we're going after this demo with this movie, okay? And we have a love triangle in this movie. And we have sort of, you know, Winona Ryder, 
She's uh, trying to choose between these two guys, Ben Stiller, who is sort of the corporate sellout, although he's trying to help her, gives her money, buys her stuff, really supports her, is a pretty good guy. Um, and then there's also Ethan Hawke, who's sort of like, like the slacker from Central Casting. Like he's this Byronic like person who's like goes around describing irony and realizing it's ironic and he knows that, you know, <laughs> uh, eats a Snicker bar without unwrapping it because it's like too much work or whatever, you know. So then, at the end of the movie, when Nona Ryder ends up going with Ethan Hawke, even though it's like he's not a very good boyfriend and pretty mean to her. Now, I watched this movie as a senior in college, and me and all my friends watch it. And then, uh, I think we go on a Friday, and we watch a syndicated episode of Siskel and Ebert at the movies mm -hmm. that weekend. And Siskel and Ebert both don't really like the movie, and they're like, Nona Ryder chose the wrong guy. Why did she choose this jerk? This other person is, you know, good for her life. And at the time, we all thought the same thing. We were like, well, that just proves that like, we're younger and they're older, that we see this relationship as um, you know, kind of dynamic and real and authentic and all this stuff. So you stuff. were rooting yeah. for her to be with Ethan Hawke. It seemed obvious to us. Yeah. It seemed obvious that that would be the only way you would, that the only person you would choose in that. And I assume this would be, this would transcend time, that if you showed this movie to a 16-year-old right now, they'd be like, of course. You know? but it turns out that's not true. <laughs> That it was only people who were young in the mid-90s who look at that movie and it's like, that's the guy. <laughs> Everybody else is like, is she crazy, you know? Um, like, it only made sense in 1994 because that was, the, that was the one period of time really we're looking at 91, maybe to 96, where being an authentic jerk was a more admirable quality than being a compromised anything. Right. Like, you know, that, that anyone who in any way did, did anything to, like, make themselves um, more beloved or more popular to people who weren't their peers, that was what we called sellouts at the right. time, you know? And that's sort of what Ben's... And, and the reason that movie is so effective is in some ways it's kind of the sellout version of the problem. Because it's a mainstream movie. There's all this, like, a product placement in it. The script was rewritten 80 times. The woman who wrote the script initially wrote it about her friends and it got changed just like it did to Winona Ryder in this movie. Um, but that's maybe why it understands the problem so profoundly. Like, it actually is the situation it's describing. Yeah. We had uh, uh, one staffer say that they, they think it has affected their dating life negatively, permanently, because of what happens in the movie Reality Bites. So the, the ripples continue. I was, I know I was damaged by this idea of selling out. I know I was. Mm -hmm. Because it was such a complicated idea, and it was so central to everything that you... Uh, it didn't matter. You couldn't change what you do. You couldn't in any way try to appeal. You had to look at everything you did as having integrity in and of itself. And as a consequence, like even promoting a book like this, I feel terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I, I really, I got back kind of into a 90s mindset when I did this. Because I, you know, I was like, I wrote this book during the pandemic. But what happened is, you know, I have two kids and it was real complicated as it was for, I'm sure, everybody here. But like, I'd get up at five in the morning and I'd write till 9 a.m. basically before my kid did his like online school. So I'd have like four or five hours where I was like living in the 90s. <laughs> and I started to sort of get back into some of this thinking. And it makes it really hard to promote a book hmm. when you believe promoting a book means you're awful. Right. And like that, it's just like, it's embarrassing to try to convince someone to buy it. You know, and I would tell my publisher that, and they, they didn't love to hear that, yeah, you know? No. And I was like, Probably not. like, I was like, I'm kind of embarrassed to go on tour. I was like, well, uh, gosh, it's like, uh, I don't want to be the Ben Stiller no. of this situation. Exactly. <laughs> I want to be the Ethan Hawke. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we're talking to Chuck Klosterman, who's the Chuck Klosterman of writing. His new book is uh, The 90s. And um, obviously, like, the maybe hugest thing that happened in the 90s that changed our life was the, the internet coming along. And you write about it in the book, and you say it's kind of like the, the invention of the wheel, but you point out something that I hadn't thought of, which was, was the axle that really was what they needed to invent. Like, the wheel had been around for a while. How does that sort of relate to the internet for you? Well, I mean, I, I was always sort of fascinated when you find out how long the wheel has existed because it's so much less than the length of time mankind has existed. And it's like, somebody had to see a log roll down a hill, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. how, how did it never occur to them that this is better than dragging things on the ground? But the thing was, until it really get to the Bronze Age or whatever, did they have the ability to create uh, an axle, so that you could have, uh, you know, a, a cart that's stationary, and then the wheel that moves independently. And in, in a way, that's sort of how the internet was, because we're always trying to figure out when it actually started. But what we're, what we're really thinking about, in many ways, is people's relationships to personal computing. That, like, there are people who would argue that the the origin of the internet was in the '60s or whatever, you know, for military purposes or whatever, you know. Right. Um, but it wasn't until people sort of became comfortable with the idea of a home computer, and then the idea of how these this network of network could operate, did then we kind of start building off that, you know. I mean, there are many interesting things about this. Like, I I didn't really write about this in the book, but um, other people have noted how, you know, the 1980s was the beginning of, like, Atari and Nintendo and all those things. And what was happening during the 80s then is you had parents upstairs in the living room watching television, and they had kids downstairs playing Atari and Nintendo. And to those kids, the idea of manipulating what you saw on the screen was not weird. It was normal. It was like, I've, I've played Centipede or whatever. <laughs> so when they get into the kind of the internet culture, they almost feel native to it already. Like, it makes sense to them. Whereas for the people who predate that, it was almost like, well, wait a second. So this is not just a monitor. These are people. Like, it, yeah. it, it's this is interactive. Exactly, yeah. yeah. TV made of yeah. people, yeah. right, <laughs> like you say in the book. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you actually set about even writing a book like this. Like, do you just lay out a bunch of big moments that you think were culturally significant, and then you write about them wherever it was they landed during the decade? Like, this just seems like a very uh, ambitious project. You know, I had never done so much of my other work, even if it was about the 90s or about some of these same ideas. I mean, I'd written about Nirvana before, I'd written about David Koresh before, and I'd written about, you know, the Unabomber and all these things. But that was always done kind of in an essayistic way, where it was just sort of my personal relationship to the thing. And I knew that this book couldn't be like that. So as far as picking the things, it's like, I don't know, I just, I tried to distance my own experience from it. But at the, I did have a benefit that, you know, I came from North Dakota and then lived kind of in suburban Ohio, where uh, during the 90s, the experience I had was really the, the most mainstream view of that period. I mean, particularly in North Dakota. Like, the news that, in the culture that gets to North Dakota are the things that start on the coast and they still exist <laughs> all when they finally get to the middle of the continent, you know? <laughs> so I thought to myself, well, in some ways, in a book like this, this is an advantage, right? I was trying to write something that is big picture, you know? Like, there was at one point, like, I, like I wrote about Nirvana. At one point, I was thinking, like, well, I'm going to write about Jane's addiction mm. because Jane's addiction is a, something that really starts in the 80s, and it's part of, like, really part of hair metal to a degree. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this uh, sort of um, alternative idea, and then, you know, Perry Farrell ends up starting Little Palooza and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thinking maybe that should be the, the musical artist I use to describe this, but I'm like, well, that would be a little bit like if I wrote 
wrote a book on the 60s and I was like, I'm going to write about the kinks. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not writing about the Beatles. Right. Because, right, you know, right. I was like, but if you write about the 60s, you write about the Beatles. And if you write about the 90s, you write about Nirvana. You write about Bill Clinton. You write about the internet. You know, you write about Quentin Tarantino. So I, so while I think that there's a, you know, a certain kind of person who might be like, well, he just kind of did the obvious stuff. And I was like, well, yes. Because in 50 years, it won't be obvious, because nothing will be obvious in 50 years. Yeah. We're talking to Chuck Klosterman about his latest book, uh, The 90s. Um, so as is obvious, you have spent a lot of time considering the 90s from a kind of a, an intellectual perspective. But we wanted to get your gut-level reaction to some 90s scenarios. First, though, I mean, are you up for this, Absolutely. Chuck? Absolutely. Okay, because we're calling this exercise, Chuck Klosterman, What's Your Opinion? Yes, that's right. Livewire House Band. So here's how this is going to work, Chuck. Uh, Elena Passarello is going to read you a couple of scenarios. These are inspired from your book, and we are going to ask you uh, which scenario you would prefer. It's sure. a sort of would you rather 90s okay. edition. Okay. Would you rather have Ross Perot as your president or Polly Shore as your roommate? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, Ross Perot probably was not qualified to be president. Mm -mm. Polly Shore would have been qualified to be my roommate. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, I lived with people who weren't that far. <laughs> From like Polly Shore's you persona? <laughs> well, I mean, also, you know, Polly Shore was much older than he played. Like in Encino Man, for example, he's played a high school kid like he looks 27 in that movie, you know. Uh, but he just kind of, you know, he made up his own language. You know, like if you make up your own language, you become younger. Um, you know, I, 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 I really, I guess, I think that the entire world we live in now could be so completely different if HRS Pro had won that election that, you know, uh, it seems hard to imagine it being worse, but who knows? So <laughs> I, I would go with Polly Shore in this one. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, well, I don't think I deserve applause for this, but it's like, uh, uh, I mean, we have, we have some common interests, you know? Yeah. 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 Wheezing the juice. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, grindage and things like yeah, that. You know? right. yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, you reasoned through that one admirably, yeah. Chuck. All right. It's good to hear the system of logic. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Which would you rather drink for the rest of your life? I know one's going to be Zima. Correct. Okay. Can you guess what the other one is? Uh, the other one's going to be like what? Like Crystal Pepsi exactly. or something? Exactly. Okay. You don't even have to answer the question. Why did you write this book? Yeah, right? Okay, so uh, I remember the night that I saw Zima for the first time. <laughs> um, and th this idea, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I remember me and some other guys talking. It's like, this is going to get a lot of people drunk who don't usually get drunk. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Because it looks like water, right? It's like, this is really going to enhance the energy at parties, right? You know? <laughs> um, but what you realize with Zima is that uh, every single Zimmer you have for the rest of your life gets worse than the previous one. <laughs> like it is the opposite of an acquired taste. 
Where like, you know, the first time you have coffee, it doesn't taste so great, and then eventually you're addicted to it. Zima's the opposite. Every Zima you have is worse. It's kind of like going to Las Vegas. Like, <laughs> like every time you go there, it's less fun than you remember it. Um, so if I drank nothing but Zima for the rest of my life, that would mean until I die, every time I'm thirsty, I would know what I'm going to consume is worse than the last thing I had when I was previously thirsty. Um, Crystal Pepsi was actually just Pepsi without coloring. Um, so then I'd be drinking Pepsi my whole life. I mean, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> I will accept that. Um, what a life. Yeah. You and Polly Shore drinking, drinking your Crystal yeah. Pepsi. <laughs> okay, one more before we wrap this up. Okay, uh, sorry to do this one to you. Would you rather have to listen to the slap bass from Seinfeld every time you enter a room... <laughs> Or would you rather have to listen to the opening flute riff of My Heart Will Go On every time you're about to get busy? <laughs> I say get busy because yeah. it's very 90s. Yeah. Um, well, okay. I mean, I'm married, I have two kids, but I am entering rooms way more often than I'm having sex. I don't think that's... <laughs> I, I, I don't think this is an outrageous thing. Like, if somebody's like, I don't know, it's like they'd be you know, too many times a day. I, I you know, uh, so. I love if, how seriously yeah. you take this stuff, yeah, Chuck. I mean, this is what's yeah. so wonderful about your brain. I mean, and your logic is actually pretty unassailable. You're like, mm -hmm. okay, of these two things, what's going to be occurring more often? Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's all volume, you know? And, <laughs> and if, if, like, if I had just walked out here for this interview and the slap bass had happened, that wouldn't be so bad. Um, you know, uh, I suppose if, if it's the, the heart will go on thing, it's like I almost feel like I've got to ask my wife about this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's um, something that needs consent. Yeah, yeah. And, also it's like, and also, like, my kids are eight and six, right? So at some point, they're going to be, like, 16 and 14, and they're going to start putting this together. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. like, that's They're like, weird that this happens, and yeah. it's like, yeah. So you're choosing I Seinfeld guess that, uh, yeah. slap bass. Sure, you know. All right. Boom, boom, boom. One last question. This isn't from the quiz, but I'm yeah. just curious. The cover of this book, I think, is so genius. You have selected uh, maybe one of the more iconic visuals from the 90s, which is the corded telephone that was clear so you could see inside uh, all okay. of the electronics. Okay. Why'd you pick this? So I had that phone, right? <laughs> now, I bought that phone, and... This is a, maybe a strange reason because in the patience video, Axl Rose smashes it with his foot. Uh, right. Do you remember that? Like, yeah. like I saw that video and bought that phone the next day. That's how interesting I was <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, so I told my editor, I was like, "What if we just have one of those clear phones?" Because it's like that was what the future was assumed to be like in the past. Kind of like if you go to Disneyland and they have that Land of Tomorrow, that whatever. World of Tomorrow. Yeah, but it's the World of Tomorrow from the 50s. Right, right. So it's like we're all going to be eating at restaurants where we all have our own table. Like these ideas that nobody <laughs> never happened, but they were like, maybe. So I was like, so that's what to me that phone is sort of like that's what we thought about the future when we did not believe the future would actually be different. Like, we thought it would still be people using phones right. in the same way we use them now, but we're going to make this one clear. <laughs> <laughs> like Pepsi. Uh, it's a great book, The 90s, a book by Chuck Klosterman. Thank you, Chuck, so much. That was Chuck Klosterman right here on Livewire, recorded at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. 
Chuck's book, The 90s, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Jane Johnson of Everett, Washington, and James Dash of Portland, Oregon. Jane and James are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it is genuinely how we are able to keep doing the show. So a big thanks to Jane and James for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask our listeners a question. We were inspired by Chuck Klosterman's book, The 90s, this week. So we asked the Livewire listeners, what are you most nostalgic for from the 90s? Elena has been uh, collecting up those responses. What do you see? Oh, my gosh. These are so good, Burbank. Maybe because I am a child and early adult of the 90s. Yeah. This is really in our like demographic wheelhouse for you and I. Here's something from the 90s that Heidi is nostalgic for, TV theme songs. They have gotten rid of the TV theme song now. They probably figure we can squeeze another minute of advertising in if we don't spend so much time singing about what's going to happen. Best TV show theme song, do you have an opinion? Well, this is not a particularly interesting uh, answer, but I do think that Cheers has Mm. a pretty... I mean, it just puts you in a mood to watch that show. Same. Um, But... You know, I, I like the Mary Tyler Moore show mm. theme song as well. Very, very good. How about yeah. you? I think uh, for the same reason, Golden Girls. Like, mm. it's also a great karaoke song. If anybody's looking for a, you're in, you're out, you, you make everybody sing along. Yes. All right, something else that one of our listeners is nostalgic for from the 90s. Is it okay if I do some things else? I just want to give you a few more of these. Yeah, let's do it. Just, just rip through some. All right, here we go. We are nostalgic for dumb phones. Thanks, Tim. Short sleeve flannels worn over long sleeve thermals. Oh my gosh, that was my look. (laughs) The Eddie Vedder. Uh, Blissful (laughs) ignorance. Thanks, Anna. (laughs) The scholastic book order form. Ah! TV channels that played music videos. Life without social media. Hypercolor. Dr. Pepper flavored lip smackers. And L.A. Gear aerobics tennis shoes. (laughs) (laughs) We could do uh, 10 minutes on each one of those topics that you just raised because they were all a big part of the pop culture (laughs) of my uh, teenage years. Uh, One more before we get out of here. Well, I mean, this one from Lynn, I think we're all very uh, nostalgic for not being so online. Our brains were like pink Jolly Ranchers, you know? <laughs> yes. Just, I, I had I had like a, an attention span. Is that what they call it? <laughs> yeah. I think, My I brain forgot. was actually able to create its own serotonin. Gosh, what a time. I would call people on the phone and we would just have uninterrupted conversations, but uh, I couldn't pace while I was doing it because the phone was plugged into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or you had that really long cord mm-hmm. and you'd go like, because the phone was always in the kitchen mm-hmm. or some public space, but mm-hmm. you would you know, want to talk to your crush or whatever. So you'd get mm-hmm. that long cord and you'd go hide in a closet or something. Mm-hmm. It was a fun time. All right, thanks to everyone who sent in their uh, things they were nostalgic for from the 90s. Those were all really, really good suggestions. This is Livewire. NPR calls our musical guest this week one of the most unique groups around today, and they certainly are. Making movies incorporates traditional Latin American instruments and sounds into their truly one-of-a-kind style, creating American music, as they say, with an asterisk because it represents all of the Americas. They've shared the stage with such artists as Arcade Fire, 
Los Lobos, Thievery Corporation, and Rodrigo y Gabriela. And their fourth album, Sopa, dropped this summer. Making Movies joined us on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen. Good evening. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so, Enrique, uh, I was curious. Uh, you, you and your brother, uh, Diego, were born in Panama, but you moved when you were six, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and Diego, you were about two. So what do you remember from your kind of musical time in Panama uh, from like zero to six? Is that long enough to have that musical culture really kind of seep into you? Yes, I think. You know, I, I remember, definitely remember afternoons at my grandmother's house and music's just threaded into the culture. The, the taxi cabs play music at like that volume that makes speakers sound like they're exploding. And, <laughs> and um, I don't even know how they, the clubs do the same thing. You know, it's like it's just part of the flavor. Everything's a little crunchy sounding down there. But I also remember loving a song by the Dire Straits. My dad is a, our dad is a rock and roll fan. And the song, The Walk of Life. Uh-huh. And here comes on his name. But I didn't speak English, so I would sing it. But I don't know what I was singing. <laughs> but it, it kind of, a, we actually got our name, the name of the band from the Dire Straits, because my, my dad had all these records at home, and, and one of their albums is called Making Movies. And it's on the same font on the, on the vinyl cover. And since I was kind of listening to it out of time and place, I was like, hey, Dad, is this band called Making Movies hmm. with an album called Dire Straits? And that's where we got the name of the band. But I, yeah, I remember loving that. And that reminds me that music doesn't have to be in the language you speak to communicate to you. Yeah. Now, this new album, though, is entirely in Spanish, right? And I think I had read that you said when you write lyrics in Spanish or when you write lyrics in English, it feels like you're sort of two different people. And so to just focus on one thing, you went all Spanish on this one? I did. And, and the lyrics um, for this album, they're, they're the most personal lyrics that, that we've made, um, perhaps because part of the album process was done during the pandemic. It was an introspective time, I think, for all of us. Um, but regardless, it just felt like to tell those stories and kind of show that part of ourselves um, and, and myself as the lyricist in the band, it felt right to do it all in Spanish this time for the first time. Uh, so much of the talk around your band is the, the music, but also the activism, what your band really stands for. Um, how do you balance those two things? I mean, do you think of what you're doing as, as something music first with activism or vice versa? Or do you feel like you shouldn't have to choose? Yeah, I, I feel like you shouldn't leave anything at the door, right? So when you walk into a room, you should be your full self, all these parts of, of, of your identity. And so I, I don't think you, we need to choose, but it's definitely music first. And sometimes people peg this with political activism because there are things that we believe in that, that they'd end up you know, moving into the political space, you know, supporting families and believing in nurturing kids. If kids are from immigrant families or from black families, it's a, it's a different conversation. Hmm. And, or, and, and so that is a political conversation. But that's not what, where we came from. It's just that we come from immigrant families and black families. So that's just natural for us. So people peg it as political. But what we have done is we started a foundation in Kansas City, a not-for-profit that does like music education as a vehicle to talk about mental health and to kind of look at the whole young person and, and try to empower them. And thank you. And I love that because it it doesn't have to be political mm-hmm. then. You're just investing in kids and using music to do so. Yeah. 
Um, another thing that, that people tend to um, sort of say about your band is that you may have invented a new genre of music. Do you think that's like, is that, would you agree with that? I think we're ma moving music forward. Um, we're using the same ingredients that made the jambalaya of rock and roll and soul and blues and jazz happen. We're going back to those ingredients, but we have a new recipe. And I think that's what music's all about, is just being a part of the conversation. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to a performance from the rock group Making Movies, which we recorded live at Revolution Hall in Portland. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we will hear a song from them. So stick around for that. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a performance from the rock group Making Movies. They joined us live on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Let's check back in with that. Oh, well, what song are we going to hear? This song is called Sopa in Panama. They flip que paso, they make it backwards. So, que sopa, as in like, yo, what's up? Que sopa. And so it's kind of our greeting to the world, saying, hey, this is who we are. All right, this is Making Movies on Livewire. Viajeros 
Porque nadie sabe los secretos de nuestro pasado Somos luceros en la noche, somos guardianes del legado making movies live on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. They brought the house down. Their latest album, Sopa, is available now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to talk to the writer Dana Schwartz about her new YA book, Immortality, A Love Story, which I consider an A book because I'm an adult and I read it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, We're also going to talk to Dana about her very interesting podcast called Noble Blood, which unpacks the completely bizarre stories from the lives of historical royals. Then we're going to talk to another writer, Jenny O'Dell, about her book, Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. The Washington Post calls it an ambitious project that takes on time management, self-help, climate nihilism, our fear of dying, and the grind of corporate life. I'm not done yet, Elena. Ultimately asking us to see time itself through a different lens. That took some time. Yeah, sure did. Uh, Then we're going to run out the hour with some music from Black Belt Eagle Scout. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? We want to know, what is your favorite way to waste time? Don't say listening to Livewire. This is an educational experience, please. (laughs) All right, if you've got a response to our question, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We are at Livewire Radio. 
As far as this week's show goes, well, we're pretty much done. Thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks to our guests, Chuck Klosterman and Making Movies. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing and production manager is Paige Thomas. Our production fellow is Tundi Kumar. And Yasmin Median is our intern. Our house band was Mike Gamble, Zach Domer, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Jane Johnson of Everett, Washington, and James Dash of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 